Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. This is America's 360, and I am your host, Leela Abed, filling in this episode for John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin America Program, and Mexico Institute. In this episode of America's 360, we delve into the crucial transatlantic relations between Europe and the Americas. Spain assumed the presidency of the Council of the European Union this July, kicking off the country's fifth leadership term. The European Union remains the second largest foreign investor in Latin America and the Caribbean, with countries like the United States and China both pushing to increase their investments into the region. Against this backdrop, the European Union and the community of Latin American and Caribbean states hosted the third EU Select Summit in Brussels this July 17th and 18th highlighting discussions on health resilience, security, climate change, trade, and digital transformation. And here to analyze these topics, we have our roundtable of experts, Wilson Center's Distinguished Fellow, Cindy Arnson. Cindy, great to have you. Hi, Lila. Latin American Program Director, Benjamin Gadad. So good to see you. Likewise, Lila. Mexico Institute Program Director, Andrew Rudman. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Lila. Brazil Institute Director, Bruna Santos. Bruna, welcome. Hello, Lila. Thank you for having me. And last but not least, Canada's Institute Director, Chris Sands. Chris, welcome. Thanks, Lila. Nice to be here. So, Cindy, since you were the first on the list, let's kick this conversation off with you. I, I, think, it's, I think it's evident, right? Europe's importance and influence in Latin America, especially when it comes to the economy. Annual trade between the two blocks has increased 39% over the past decade to 369 billion euros or $414 billion dollars. EU investment in the region stood at 693 billion euros, a 45% increase over the past decade. So how would you assess the impact, Cindy, made by European investments in the Americas in the past decade, and which sectors really stood out, stand out to you? Well, I think the figures that you've just cited speak for themselves. The European Union presence as a, as a whole um, is massive in Latin America and the Caribbean, and the EU is looking to expand that. And I think one of the notable things at the EU CELAC summit that took place in Brussels in July um, was a pledge by the EU to invest another $50 billion dollars. Um, in in the region, in green economies, in um, access to uh, raw materials that are important for the energy transition, um, but I think it's uh, it's it's important to point out that um, unlike China, which has the commodities trade at the center of its economic relationship um, with Latin America, um, the EU has a much more diverse. Um, uh, relationship that involves manufacturing investments in addition to primary commodities and energy. Cindy, I think you bringing up China is is very important. I think we're going to get to that um, in just a bit. But Benjamin, a key objective for Europe at this summit was really to seek greater support for Ukraine and, and counter the Russian invasion, reduce uh, China's dependence in the region, as, as Cindy kind of alluded to. But there's also this affirmation, right, that, uh, that a lot of the the part of this organization has a commitment to democracy and human rights and fundamental freedoms. How do you see these issues playing out in the region with the EU's 
influence growing um, during this past decade. So those who are interested in the defense of democracy in Latin America should welcome the EU as an external partner for the region. Obviously, that's not the foundation of the Chinese relationship with the countries in the Americas. And so, you know, the EU should be really seen as a force multiplier for the United States and other allies of democracy in Latin America. That said, it's not an easy strategy at this point, right, even for the EU to pursue. The EU was faced with the same challenge the United States faced when hosting the Summit of the Americas last year in Los Angeles which is should you include the dictatorships in Latin America? And ultimately, the EU decided to do so. And the consequence of that, you could see in the final declaration that there wasn't such a robust response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, nor in general, the embrace of democracy that we would love to see from the Americas when we talk about these shared values with our neighbors in the Western Hemisphere. So at the end of the day, I think the EU is certainly a good influence on the Americas when it comes to democracy, but faces the same challenge the United States faces in the region. So, Benjamin, you still see this division, right, in in the region um, because of China's influence and the fact that it does capture the attention of some of the governments in, in the hemisphere. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the EU is really savvy in emphasizing its infrastructure investments in the region through this global gateway program, because fundamentally, China's influence is based on the capital it puts in Latin America and on its voracious appetite you're, for the exports muted, from Latin Benjamin, America. You're, you're and muted? so it's nice to have conversations about shared values, but the influence that the EU or the United States might have in the Americas really will be based on the money put on the table. And so I think the EU, frankly, did much better than the United States in the Summit of the Americas by stepping forward and putting in this 50 billion dollars that Cindy referenced, which will make a meaningful difference in the region and really turn heads. I'm eager to to, to get uh, both Bruna's and Andrew's reaction, right, as they represent the two sort of giants in the region. And so in, in 2021, Brazil and Mexico were the two countries that received the most foreign direct investment. How important was the EU in, in terms of investing in key and strategic sectors in, in Brazil, Bruna? Well, first of all, I think economically, the EU is Brazil's second largest trade partner in terms of investments is like really close to the to the US in importance. And I think uh, the European Union today, as Benjamin mentioned, holds a pivotal role in Brazil's like strategic landscape as uh, it's seen by the current government, not only as a beacon of Western democracy, but also as a component, an important component in this vision of a multipolar um, international framework, which is essential to counterbalance this uh, the polarization between the, the binary between uh, China and the U.S. So I think there is a um, an extremely like important um, investment uh, coming in now in Brazil, not only f- through the Amazon fund. But also in the energy sector, I would highlight, as uh, Benjamin mentioned, there were other sectors uh, with um, be a big size of investments being made. But also, like I believe that green hydrogen is definitely a big highlight in the energy sector in Brazil. Uh, some of the first endeavors in the country on, on green hydrogen has been made by German companies. And it was a highlight that came out of the Global Gateway um, agenda among the 130 projects that are that are supposed to, to be developed in the region. So I think the green economy, clean energy, with a highlight to green hydrogen is an important, two, three important um, agendas for, for European investments in the region. And I think that goes with trend with the ecological transition and this focus on renewable energies, right, that's coming from the European Union and kind of has translated into their policies and and strategies with Latin America. 
Andrew, um, the European Union and Mexico recently just modernized their their trade agreement, which has really helped both economies to to stretch sort of their already good um, relationship in, in terms of um, you know trade and and economics, but also other issues such as uh, commitments to, to democracy and human rights. So, how have you seen um, the relationship between Mexico and the EU? Has it been strengthened, or do you see that? the United States still sort of is at the top of the line for, for Mexico in comparison to the EU? Well, I, you know, I, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, certainly the free trade agreement and, and Mexico was the first country in, in Latin America to have a free trade agreement with the EU. And it makes sense just as it made sense to update NAFTA for Mexico and the EU to update their agreement. And there's always been friction. You know, Mexico sometimes um, plays the, the middle on, on standards that the U.S. wants to set versus what Europe wants to set on things like geographic indicators or, or different um, different structures, different regulatory provisions. I think, you know, while the EU is the number two trading partner, number two investor, the difference maybe between Mexico and, and Brazil or other countries in the hemisphere is that the U.S. is just so overwhelmingly um, dominant in terms of the importance of uh, to the Mexican economy. So I, I think you see improvement and certainly updating the agreement um, is a good sign. And there has been investment, um, in, you know, nearshoring investment from European countries, just as from Chinese countries, as they look um, to get into the North American market, to get inside the, the USMCA. Chris, now I, I might be completely wrong, but that's why I asked my Canada expert. Um, according to my research, Canada is the oldest formal relationship the EU has with any industrialized country. And not only does Canada have strategic and economic agreements in place with the EU, but it also has contributed to European civilian and military missions in different regions around the world. I mean, it's, it's a very, you know, it's, it's a wide range of issues that Canada seems to have with the European Union. So how, how would you categorize this bilateral relationship? Well, it, it's a very interesting one, Leela. In some ways, when I started, we started talking about this uh, podcast theme, I thought, well, Canada is going to be the odd country out. Its relationships with Europe are very different. They're a NATO member. They're participating in a, a Western European transatlantic community uh, in a very different way. And of course, just Four years ago, Canada signed the Canada-EU Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement with the European Union, which has labor mobility provisions. It has um, uh, sort of professional certifications that are recognized on both sides. It provides for respect for certain geographic indicators. And in terms of trade, even allows for a certain amount of U.S. content in a Canadian good that can still enter into the European Union, which is a big uh, sort of step forward, acknowledging the fact that the U.S. and Canada have integrated their supply chains so much. Now, you could say, well, that puts Canada in a different category. Why are they even here in the this discussion on America's 360? But when I think about it, I also think Canada has set a benchmark there for what Latin American countries could aspire to or even demand from the Europeans as partners. When we talk about the EU-Latin America relationship, there is still a development component. And there is a little bit of a we're a developed region and you're still developing kind of dynamic. But when you take that off the table, uh, I think you can hope for a much more sophisticated relationship in which the U.S. is always sort of there in the background. It, it is a shadow on all of this, but one which the U.S. doesn't see as a negative competition 
and which can bring the modern Latin American economy, the information economy, the energy economy Bruno was talking about, but, but apps, technology, cell phones, all of the things that we think of as the sort of modern economy and a real meeting of peers. And I think that's, uh, if there's anything from the Canadian experience that could be useful here in this discussion, it's that uh, Latin America sets its sights high and, uh, and demand equal treatment with the Canadian. Cindy, your thoughts? Sure. I, I just want to add another ingredient to this um, important conversation, which has to do precisely with energy and the needs of the European uh, community and European Union after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which led to um, broad international sanctions from both uh, Western Europe and the United States. Um, almost a quarter of uh, the EU's overall energy imports in 2020 came from Russia, almost a quarter. And if you look just at natural gas, the figure is 50% um, of natural gas imported into the EU came from Russia. And this was a very deliberate strategy, I think, to try to improve the relations, the relationships between European countries, particularly Germany, by having uh, these gas pipelines. Um, so the need for energy um, is is pretty acute um, in Europe, and Latin America is seen as not only a source of traditional oil and gas, but also um, as being in the forefront of this green energy transition, not only with lithium resources, but also um, the, uh, the attempts to develop green hydrogen and other kinds of uh, um, of new technologies. And, and that points also to the importance um, in the final declaration of Ukraine as an issue of central importance to the EU. Um, but I'll stop there and let one of my other colleagues talk some more about that. Well, Cindy and, and Benjamin, if you want to chime in here as well, how I, I find it very interesting, this, this news about um, the fact that the the grain that was supposed to flow from Ukraine to countries in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, where hunger is is a growing threat, has been halted. Right, um, with with Russia saying it's no longer going to allow grain to leave Ukrainian ports. Th does this offer Latin America sort of an opportunity to fill those voids, or is it really going to not be able to really do much about this aspect um, of what's happening in Ukraine? I feel that what you just mentioned, Cindy, in terms of energy. And in terms of how that can play a role in Latin America, this, you know, um, the, the, this ability to produce grain and fertilizers, I know uh, Bruna and Brazil are, are very important. Um, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, look, I think, frankly, there's a relatively low ceiling on what the EU is willing to do in the Americas. The reality is, is what happens in the Americas just doesn't impact Europe in the way it does the United States. And, you know, migration is the most obvious example of that. But, you know, you can think of economic links and kind of go down the list. But Cindy's absolutely right. The impacts of the war in Ukraine have reminded Europe that the partnership with the Americas is valuable, right? It isn't just a place where Europe is being asked to defend democracy or address the crisis in Haiti or the Venezuelan migration nightmare, but it's also a place with these enormous quantities of critical minerals, a lot of potential for renewable energy. It is a place that can be helpful to Europe if the right partnerships are built. And so I think it's an opportunity for Latin America. It's an immense diplomatic and economic and geostrategic opportunity to be a valuable partner on food security and energy security above all. And on this line of, of, of food and energy security, Bruno, how do you see this playing out um, in, in Brazil with e EU's presence there? 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree with Benjamin. And, but I uh, also like the European markets are open to Brazilian critical minerals now. So that's ob- a more obvious partner too. Also, I, I totally agree with Cindy when she says that um, this, the significance of Latin America has grown among Europeans due not only to the escalating climate crisis, but also Russia's large-scale invasion of Ukraine. But in Brazil, I think that the Lula's election was also an important element to it. Uh, we all remember the bad relationship between uh, Brazil's former president and uh, the French president and the German um, so I think that we need, uh, right now, I think the region has, is abundant in essential raw materials, uh, for, towards like this, uh, low carbon economy, of course. But I want to mention something, uh, that is where, in my opinion, the European Union is very influential in the country, which is what we call the Brussels effect, the digital market, uh, regulatory aspects of it and how it's been like, more and more influential in the, this all this like climate change and environmental uh, agenda also in, as a in the, rec- the regulatory aspects of it. So I think that when it comes to looking at the the Brussels effect to the digital economy, data protection, internet regulation, now AI, I think is where this uh, effect is more evident. And um, I don't want to dive into that. So much, but I think that um, the general data protection regulation created in in the European Union was definitely an inspiration for Brazil and for a number of Latin American countries. I ask myself, it's the most if it is the most adequate model for the Latin American countries. An example of Brazil and the size of the market, but um, I the the Columbia law professor who wrote who, who coined the term Brussels effect. She says something in her book that it's it's important to remember. She says that the EU law determined the timber that is, harvar- is harvested in Indonesia and how honey is going to be produced in Brazil. So I think that through this regulatory mimetism, somehow the European uh, Union is uh, gauging more and more influence in the region, and especially in Brazil when it comes to important supply chains. And shifting gears a little bit here, Andrew, what do you, what are your, what is your take on the declaration of the EU phylaxum of 2023? Um, are there any specific articles within uh, that document that kind of stand out to you? Thanks, thanks, Leela. There's, there's one that I, I, I thought was sort of surprising, but I, I think maybe connects to topics we've talked about before, and that's it kind of in the middle in Article 36, as we acknowledge the need to better and proactively inform our citizens and relevant stakeholders about mutual benefits of the SALAC EU partnership. And that, you know, that jumps out at me and maybe I'm, maybe this is too much of a reach, but that maybe in some sense, this is, this is the government's acknowledging that they have to convince their, their people that democracy has value and that these relationships matter because otherwise I think it just plays into that idea of that none of this is having an impact on people's lives, and that's what leads to more support for populism. So I thought it was kind of interesting, sort of slipped in there. Um, you know, I, I didn't notice it the first time I skimmed through, uh, but it's just something to something I thought curious. And and I'll just say, going back to what Bruno was saying, that that was what she just mentioned is sort of what I was talking about earlier. This idea that the EU competes to get different countries to accept its standards as do we. And that's really played out heavily in Mexico as it tries to negotiate FTAs. 
or has negotiated FTAs with the U.S. that wants certain standards for intellectual property and the EU, which has different approaches. Chris, we, we're wrapping up here, but before we, we do uh, close this conversation, I wanted to ask you how you see culture playing a role, right, in, in the EU-Canada relationship and perhaps even in North America and Latin America more broadly. You know, I think in a way this builds on something that Andrew just raised. We're all looking at relationships that are negotiated by governments and governmental elites at some level, but sometimes it's the people-to-people ties, the resonances that make it make sense for us to have these conversations. Um, I'm, I'm brought to mind that when Britain brexited out of the European Union, there was a fairly significant effort on the part of Ottawa to negotiate with the British a, a bridge agreement to give Britain the same CETA level of access to Canada's market that they had before Brexit. And they were very proactive, and it turned out to be quite popular um, uh, with Canadians generally. It felt like a right and fair thing to do to what was once their their colonial power. And because of the Commonwealth, the British Commonwealth, uh, the organization of La Francophonie, former French colonies, which Canada participates in, Canada has often been a partner with Britain, France, Belgium, Switzerland, across the Caribbean and with the EU generally, trying to help those countries access bigger and bigger markets because as island economies, they have small internal ones. So, you know, sometimes these cultural ties resonant. And I and I know that there's been Ibero-American dialogues, both for the Portuguese component or the Spanish component, but even in the English and French parts of the Americas, those ties to Europe, they do still resonate. Very interesting and very true uh, as well. Um Cindy, I know that you wanted to talk about um, Mercosur for for a second. We do have about two minutes left, so if you can, it'd be great. Sure. Well, one of the one of the striking things to me was that I mean, we don't know what went on in the private conversations between um, President Lula and um, leaders of the of the European delegation. But one thing that has just been stuck for years is um, an approval of a free trade agreement between the EU and the Mercosur countries of Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, and and Paraguay. Um, And a lot of this, as Bruno was alluding to, um, you know, was, was stuck because of the environmental policies, or more importantly, the lack thereof under the previous administration of um, Jair Bolsonaro. Um, but now the um, the EU has added uh, a, a, a commitment that it wants signed about deforestation. And Lula has condemned this as a kind of as a form of neocolonialism or whatever. And one has to wonder, um, you know, how much of this emphasis on deforestation, which we all agree is a crucial issue, um, is a smokescreen for a certain kind of protectionism um, in key European countries that have important agricultural sectors and that really don't want to open up to exports of beef from Brazil and Argentina to the EU. So um, there was a statement by um, Ursula von der Leyen, who is the president of the European Commission, that she hopes or thinks that there will be um, a signing of this agreement before the end of the year. Um, I am certainly not going to hold my breath. Unfortunately, we will need to leave it there. Andrew, Cindy, Bruna, Benjamin, Chris, thank you for your insight and thank you for the opportunity to host today's episode. We look forward to learning more from you in future episodes. 
This episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Xavi Delgado, and Aldrich Ballesteros with the assistance of Isabel Steiner. Until then, from all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm Leela Abed, and thank you for joining us today. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.